Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. Even though spring is just around the corner, one of the biggest Great Lakes news stories this winter has been the lack of ice cover across the region. Today, we're chatting with James Kessler, a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory. He holds an engineering degree in earth system science and a master's of science from the University of Michigan. His research interests include large-scale physical processes in lakes, as well as numerical modeling of ice and hydrodynamics. Today, we're chatting with James about what's going on with ice cover, the big picture trends, and what this all means for the lakes. So, hi, James. Welcome so, welcome to Lakes Chat. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah. So as I mentioned, there have been a ton of news stories over the past couple of weeks about the lack of ice cover around the Great Lakes this winter. Can you give us a recap of what we've seen this winter? Sure. So as uh, most people listening have probably experienced, um, January, both January and February, we've had um, air temperatures that were well above normal. Um, And with warmer air temperatures, obviously, um, the lakes aren't going to cool as much. Um, So we've had lower, lower than average ice cover. Um, There have been sort of short-lived cold air um, outbreaks, you could call them, that have led to a small amount of like growth and then um, decay in ice cover. Um, The sort of what we call the upper lakes, Superior, Michigan, and Huron have had uh, a small amount of ice, but but definitely below average. And then Erie and Ontario have had um, near zero ice for a lot of the season. this is sort of typical for Ontario, but I'd say it's it's more rare for Erie to, to have this. And how would this compare to kind of a quote normal or average year for the lakes? Yeah, so the sh- the short answer is uh, below below average. Um, I'd maybe say well below average, um, but sort of the long answer to to, to give it some context. Um, so ice has been forming on the Great Lakes for millennia, right? Um, Uh, But we do have uh, like 50 years of data. So, you know, about five decades worth of data um, that's that's based on satellites. uh, So we we trust it. It's reliable. Um, So 50 is small compared to how long the lakes have been around. But it's actually a pretty good data set to look at. Um, So the seasonal average uh, for the for the five lakes to date um, is about six percent. So basically, on average, from the start of the winter until now, it's been about six percent. for the same time of year, um, the long-term average for this value is about 25%. Um, so that just sort of gives you some, some scale of how, how low is low this year. Um, this is the third lowest um, on record for that seasonal average. Um, the first and second lowest were 2012 and 2002. Um, and then that's for the average, but the seasonal maximum, um, which is you know, as, as high as the ice cover got this year is, is 22%. Um, and the long-term average for that same maximum is 55%. Um, so both the, the maximum and the average have been, I would say, well below average. Yeah. And so thinking about those long-term trends, you know, with that 50 years or so of data, um, certainly we're, it sounds like we're seeing some pretty big changes and, you know, is climate change a factor here? What might we see in the future? Yeah, so so um, max ice is certainly decreasing um, over over the the period of record that that we have data for. Um, that's the the annual maximum that I just described. It's decreasing at a rate of about five percent per decade, um, or about a half percent per year. 
Um, and that's on average. Um, it's you know more and less for for some of the individual lakes. Um, Superior seems to be decreasing at the highest rate. Um, Michigan at the slowest. Um, but that said, there's a great deal of year-to-year variability. Um, so, so 2014, which is fairly recent, was the second highest max ice cover on record. Uh, 2015 and 2019 were both high ice years. They're both in the top 10. Um, and there, there has been you know recent recent research that has shown that they, the year-to-year variability is actually increasing through time. Um, so not only is the average coming down, but sort of the fluctuations between high ice and low ice years is actually is increasing. So the data is sort of becoming more noisy, if that makes sense. That's really interesting. And so, you know, is, is, you know, certainly it's always so hard to tease out kind of weather versus climate. Could you talk a little bit about that difference there? You know, that annual variability versus kind of the big term, you know, changes related to climate. Sure. Um, so, so we've seen, we've seen that winter length is decreasing, right? Winters are getting shorter and we've experienced that, um, you know, not like on the land <laughs> here, not not over the lakes. Um, and the lake surface temperatures, you know, globally are increasing. Um, but more recent work has, has actually found that even subsurface temps are are increasing specifically during winter. Um, so these are these are sort of all related things, right? That that uh, have feedbacks between them. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things when I was reading up um, in preparation for our conversation, one thing that really also really fascinated me is just how little, and I guess little, I mean, to, to lay people, how small of a temperature change is needed in the lakes to really change that amount of ice cover, right? So that point where it starts to freeze and stays frozen. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, so it is, it is very, it is very, the system is very sensitive um, to those small changes. It's, it's sort of hard to, to, to quantify that with a a degree to to des- to describe it, um, but I, I kind of feel like the albedo effect is a good example of that. Um, could I describe that for you? Yeah, sure, please. Yeah, um, sure. So so this is kind of something that I think is becoming more mainstream, and a lot more people are aware of it. Um, but basically, the concept is simple: that that open water is much darker um, than white ice or snow um, that accumulates on top of the ice. Uh, so when the solar radiation, you know, what the the solar radiation hits the dark objects. Uh, those dark objects absorb the heat, uh, whereas mm-hmm. the light objects mm-hmm. reflect the heat. So once you have a small amount of ice established, uh, the sunlight is reflecting off of it, um, and the water is able to cool more, and you get more ice, leading to more reflected sunlight, and so on. Um, so just this this little bit of ice growth um, can lead to more ice. Um, so that just sort of sort of demonstrates how sensitive the system is. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so that makes sense. So for those years where we might have um, if I'm understanding this correctly, those years where we might have some really cold weather events kind of early on and you start to get that ice cover, it can sort of spur more ice cover. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of thinking of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that makes sense, you know, this year that we had those warmer early months in the winter, we sort of like started off in a deficit and it just can't create ice as we go along and the days start mm-hmm. to get longer. Yeah. You know, um, this 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 idea of sort of these super cold years and the super warm years, you know, we I hear about this in this kind of gets to my prior question a little bit about um, climate versus weather. But I hear this from sort of just casual conversation where people say, well, how can we have climate change or 
how is this a problem when we have those years with um, you know the the big polar vortexes that we've gotten over the past few years? Um, could you talk a little bit about how some of those polar changes or weather changes are impacting the Great Lakes and ice cover? Yeah, so so the when when we get these cold air outbreaks, um, the 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 polar the polar vortex or the um, the, the cold air masses that that come down um, from from up north, um, the, there are, there are ridges in the atmosphere, ridges and troughs, and these large air masses make their way to to the Great Lakes. So, as as I sort of mentioned before, if if you don't have these these cold air masses coming down, you don't have cold air over the lakes, which, you know, isn't going to, isn't going to cool them. Um, and sort of, as I mentioned with the, the year to year variability is increasing. Um, so this, this past decade, I think is a really good example of that. Uh, so really only the past two years, 2021 and 2022 were actually near average. Um, the rest of the years were, were all very high or very low ice years. Hmm. And so what does, you know, this lack of ice cover, what does it mean for the lakes themselves, right? Is it, is it, it seems to me it's probably not a good thing that, for instance, Lake Superior is experiencing less, less ice cover over time. Um, talk a little bit about what that means, what low ice cover means for the lakes themselves. So it's hard, it's, it's sort of a hard answer, or hard question to answer, because we haven't, uh, we haven't been we haven't seen the lakes in this state, um, mm. seen the lakes in a, a lower ice state. Um, we're trending somewhere where um, very possibly the lakes have been in, in the state that they will be in the future in the past, um, but we didn't have great satellites taking all sorts of measurements. Um, so it's hard to know what sort of, uh, you know, thresholds um, will we will encounter. And, you know, there may be, may be big changes and those changes could be positive or negative. Um, I can I, I can you know talk to to what it means for um, you know the the humans and the, the yeah. animals and and that sort of thing um, as far as pros versus cons of low ice cover. Um, yeah, that'd be great. About that. Yeah, sure. So so as far as good, um, I think the good for low low ice cover being a good thing. Um, I think that for commerce and navigation, that's like a huge thing to hit. Um, you know, the the shipping industry in in the Great Lakes is a multi billion dollar industry that. A lot of people aren't really um, aware of because you don't see the the freighters that are out in the middle of the lake, um, and they're significantly hindered by the ice cover. Right, um, they, in highest years, um, the, the shippers get get stuck. Um, the The coast guard is tasked with breaking shipping channels free, um, which is a you know a huge undertaking. So, so from that perspective, low ice cover is good. Um, Lake effect snow. Uh, if a if a lake is fully covered with ice, you can't get lake effect snow because you basically cut off that moisture source. Um, mm -hmm. So lake effect snow could go either way. I guess it's a <laughs> it's a good thing if you're if you're maybe a skier. Um, <laughs> if you don't like lots of snow or you maybe you drive for a living, it's probably a bad thing. Um, so in that case, low ice cover could go either way. Um, for for I guess two other instances of of sort of bad things that come about with low ice cover. Um, Shoreline erosion is something people mm. don't think about very much, but uh, in the winter we have, we often have um, severe storms, and uh, the land fast ice, which is the ice that is it's sort of adhered to the to the shore, mm. uh, protects the shore from from the from the big waves. Basically, you know, if you imagine mm. waves hitting ice, it, they dampen out you know long before they get to the shore. Um, mm. 
and also uh, I would say, you know, recreation and tourism. There's there's a lot of that that happens in the coastal cities, um, you know, snowmobiling and ice fishing and and hockey and that sort of thing. People that like to go out on the lakes. Um, and when there's low ice cover, I think, you know, the economies of those coastal cities mm -hmm. hurt during the winter. Um, and it's, there's also like potential for unsafe activities because people are are used to being able to go on the lakes and then they can't um, or mm -hmm. they can't do it safely anyways. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's something we've certainly seen. I think, you know, where I live here in upstate New York on the far eastern end of Lake Ontario, and I'm sure around the region, you know, just being able to do, you know, the winter activities of like ice fishing and, you know, all the ice fishing derbies that happen up here. And I'm sure around the region, it's been a um, a sad winter because we haven't been able to have a lot of those activities, even though I'm not much of an ice fisherwoman myself. But, you know, a lot of people really enjoy getting out there on the ice. Um. Does ice cover, um, and I don't know if you'll be able to talk about, get, talk, get into this too much, but but the relationship between ice cover and water levels, right? I think it's interesting that this sort of potential variability in ice cover, you know, sort of, um, you know, highs and lows, pardon the phrase around uh, amount of ice cover, does that have an impact on water levels around the region? It, it, it certainly does. Um, and it's a great question. Um, and it's sort of a complicated answer. Um <laughs> So as I mentioned, one size forms, um, you know, if you imagine a fully ice covered lake, it totally shuts off the, the evaporation from the lake, meaning that the water levels are gonna basically stay the same. Um, but for that ice to be able to form, um, the, the primary way that the, the water cools in order to freeze is through evaporation. Um, so we used to, the sort of old school of thought is, you know, more ice cover, less evaporation. Um, but sort of the new school of thought is like, it's, it's basically changing the timing of evaporation. Maybe you get, mm -hmm. if you have a highest cover year, you're going to get more evaporation early in the season. Um, and then it's going to eventually shut down if, you know, a lake totally freezes over. Um, mm -hmm. So it's sort of shifting the timing of evaporation, um, which certainly influences water levels. But, but because of that, it's a, it's a complicated relationship where it, you can't, you can't draw like a, a hard and fast conclusion of low mm -hmm. ice cover means this for water levels necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Um, you know, tell us a little bit, you referenced this really briefly earlier when you were talking about that 50 years of data you have, um, but I'm sort of curious how you measure ice cover. You know, I kind of imagine maybe I've watched too many Arctic documentaries, you know, researchers like you heading out onto the ice, you know, boring holes or things, but how do we uh, measure ice cover here in the Great Lakes region? How does that work? So sometimes your previous assumption is actually accurate. Um, we actually just had somebody retire um, from our research lab who would still venture out onto the ice um, and drill mm -hmm. holes to measure the thickness. Um, and I think he was, you know, nearing his 70s or in his early 70s when he really retired. It's, it's something I aspire to be um, as motivated. Um, but yeah, those those measurements are are rare and they're sparse, right? They're um, infrequent in space, but they're really essential. Those you know mm -hmm. those ground truths we call them in situ measurements are really essential for validating remote sensing, which is mostly what we use, um, or, or in other words, satellite data. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the the, the primary um, primary instruments use SAR, which is synthetic aperture radar, um, mm -hmm. to measure ice. And the advantages of SAR is that you can use it day or night. Um, it penetrates clouds. Uh, the, the Great Lakes region is very cloudy in the winter. So if you can't see through clouds, mm -hmm. you're not going to get a good picture of ice. Um, it can also distinguish between different ice types. So those are sorts mm -hmm. of the advantage of, of using that SAR data. Um, and this is, uh, I have to sort of give credit where it's due. Um, this 
this 50 years of data is, is made possible by um, the, the U.S. National Ice Center and the Canadian Ice Services, which has sort of been this joint effort um, since since the really, I think, the 1960s. But the more reliable data started in the 70s. Um, so I don't I don't have to do any of that. The heavy lifting of actually processing that data. I just get to look at the data, which is which is really nice. Um, I guess I'll mention one thing, sort of the coolest method I've heard about um, as far as remote sensing. Uh, to get ice thickness involves uh, measuring what's called the freeboard height of ice. Uh, so mm -hmm. most people have heard the expression, the tip of the iceberg. Um, mm -hmm. So the tip of the iceberg um, refers to the fact that ice only sticks out of the water a little bit, and the majority of it mm -hmm. is below below the, the surface of the water. Um, so from space, certain instruments are able to measure the, the difference from the satellite in space to the surface of the water and the surface of the ice. So they can figure out that freeboard height distance and then use like the density and buoyancy of, of water and ice to figure out how much is below the surface. Um, so to me, that's just miraculous that you can you can measure that few, the distance in a few centimeters from space. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really cool. Um, you know, some of the data you've provided us is one of those, I, I have a feeling like it's gonna take a little bit for it to sink in and, um, but these seem like pretty, dramatic changes um, for ice and for the lakes. Um, you know, as you've, you know, you're steeped in this work, as, as you've done all this work, have you had any moments you know, where you've looked at this data or this information or seen what's happening out there on the lakes that made you sort of sit back and think like, wow, you know, these are, this is amazing, either good or, or bad. Yeah, just, I, I think really just the unpredictability of it is sort of what, astonishes me, I guess, if I'm having, you know, sort of that sitting back moment, um, just looking at, like I said, sort of the past decade and how variable, how variable is getting and how it used to be sort of more around an average, you know, we had extreme years. Um, but if that continues, like what, you know, what that means and, and um, you know, working for NOAA people, we're always, we're always focused on trying to predict the future state of something. Um, and when something is becoming increasingly unpredictable, um, that makes our jobs uh, interesting, but difficult. Yeah. So it sounds like we're looking at a future, you know, in a lot of ways, but particularly around our winters of even more unpredictability and kind of sort of uncharted territory, if I can sum that up, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good way. Uncharted territory. Um, mm -hmm. We don't know, we don't know where we're headed necessarily. Yeah. And if I can put you on the spot, what do you think are some of the potential implications of that uncharted territory for the Great Lakes? Um, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, it's hard, it's hard to say. Um, I think because, because it's, you know, it's very possible that the, the physical state of the lakes have, have been in, in the state that they're headed to. Um, but we haven't, we haven't had a bunch of instruments out, you know, recording mm -hmm. data and we haven't, our understanding was certainly not as advanced then. Um, mm -hmm. or we may be actually, you know, headed towards, um, uncharted territory, as you say, that, that has not, has not been experienced, um, and, and new good or bad things will happen. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Well, James, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you sharing this data and information with us. And, uh, we'll certainly have to squeeze every bit of this winter that we can out of the remaining, uh, few, few weeks of winter here and, uh, see what happens in the future. So thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This is this is a really great talk. Thank you for listening. On our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat, 
You'll find links to more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as opportunities to sign up for updates, to stay informed about Great Lakes issues, and how to get involved. Be sure to subscribe so you'll know when the next episode is released. A special thank you to my colleague, Michelle Farley, who produces this podcast.